0: Well, I want to uh, invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2. We will be uh, finishing Lamentations 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22. And uh, the, the title of our sermon this morning is, My Enemy. And the keywords for our worshipers in training are, Plead, Look, and Children. In his little book Lament for a Son, Nicholas Wolterstorff reflects on the death of his son Eric, who died in a mountaineering accident when he was just 25 years old. When Eric was 25 years old, it's it's a powerful and honest look at death that it's a short little book, it's it's worth reading and this is what he writes, and, and it's sort of sort of a series of reflections. Uh, one, it's not really even divided up into chapters or anything like that. just he writes, and then he moves on to a new, new reflection. This is what he says in one of them, and I'll read it a link there. He says, "I'm at an impasse, and you, O God, have brought me here. From my earliest days, I have believed in you. I shared in the life of your people, in their prayers, in their work in their songs, in their listening for Your speech, and in their watching for Your presence. For me, Your yoke was easy. On me, Your presence smiled. Noon has darkened. And where are You in this darkness? I learned to spy You in the light. Here in this darkness, I cannot find You or looked but never found, I would not feel this pain of your absence. Or is it not your absence in which I dwell, but your elusive, troubling presence? Will my eyes adjust to this darkness? Will I find you in the dark? Not in the streaks of light which remain, but in the darkness? Has anyone ever found you there? Did they love what they saw? Did they see love? And are there songs for singing when the light has gone dim? The songs I learned were all of praise and thanksgiving and repentance. Or in the dark, is it best to wait in silence? He admits that this, his address to God, and not, not that address, but just his address to God in general, through an enduring faith, is uncomfortably, perplexingly altered. He says it's off target. Qualified. Deep, deep suffering will do that to us. We We come here to the end of this second poem in Lamentations. And what we find is an address to God that is certainly uncomfortable, perplexing, altered. In the first poem, we saw the poet open with an extended speech which explored the agony of God's people after the invasion of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, which culminated in the attack in 586 B.C. where Babylon destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem and uh, raised the temple to the ground. And in this speech, in the first poem, the poet personifies the city as an abandoned, adulterous woman who had been sexually violated by many lovers and was left to die all alone. After this, Lady Zion speaks for herself, making clear that while her suffering she says is a result of her own sins coming back on her head, she she doesn't quite seem ready to own her sins. She's very quick to run right back into her own suffering. She's far more focused on her sorrows than her sins, and she ends the first poem ends with her prayer that God would visit the iniquity of her adversaries on their own heads. So that's Lamentations 1. Lamentations 2, remember, opens with another word from the poet about the sufferings of this woman. And he makes no bones about it. He says, She has been treated this harshly by God Himself. And this causes Him, we saw last week, to erupt into tears and failed attempts at consolation. And so now, having failed to comfort this woman, and he's come once again to the seemingly cruel reality that God is the One who stands over all her suffering, he realizes there's there's only one thing to do. He says this, Starting in verse 18, their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Lady Zion responds, Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should children eat the fruit of their womb? The children of their tender care? Should priests and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned, as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed." There are three things I want you to see with me from these verses this morning. First, in verses 18 and 19, we'll consider the poets pleading with Lady Zion to turn and to give herself over to the Lord in her suffering. Second, in verse 20, we'll see Lady Zion hurl a series of agonizing questions at the Lord. And third, in verses 21 and 22, we'll see her descend into despairing silence under the weight of her suffering. So first, look with me, if you will, verses 18 and 19, where we see the poet continue his direct appeal to the suffering woman's city, Lady Zion, that he began in verse 13. As, as we mentioned a moment ago, from the poet was seeking to comfort the woman. But he comes up short He starts to cry, verses 11 and 12, and verse 13. He tries to comfort her, but then he says, Your your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? And then he notes how Jerusalem's prophets and neighbors and all her enemies had conspired against her to do exactly what God's hand had predestined to take place. And he comes to the conclusion, therefore, that the only thing left to do is to turn to the Lord. And that's exactly what he exhorts her to do in these verses here. It starts off a little strange. It's a little hard to make sense of how he begins. He says, their heart cried to the Lord. Well, whose whose heart? It is difficult to determine whose heart is crying out to the Lord here. One option is is that it's the foes of verse 17. Right? Uh, He he made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. And it's their heart that's crying to the Lord. But that really is only a plausible option grammatically speaking. Theologically and and just contextually, generally, that doesn't make any sense at all. And so, We need to look elsewhere. A better option for who the there is here is a reference to the children back in verses eleven and twelve. Remember, just prior to his appeal to the city woman, the the poet speaks about children dying in the streets and in their mother's arms, doing what? Crying out as they as they die. In verse twelve, they cried to their mothers. It seems now in verse 18 the poet understands that their cry in some way is to the Lord as well to their creator. The interpretation this interpretation is strengthened by the fact that as we'll see he explicitly mentions children at the end of verse 19. So what is he doing here? He's he's calling on the whole city summarized in this phrase uh, the, the wall of the daughter of Zion. He's calling on the whole city to do the same thing that the children had done. He says, cry out to God. Let your tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, people. Arise. Cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night, watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. The poet makes seven appeals here in quick succession to call really for the same thing over and over again. He says, Lady, run to God. Yes, He is the One who has struck you down. He is the One who we saw sent fire from on high, who spread a net for your feet who has left you stunned and rejected, but where else can you turn? Be like these little children and go to Him. This is the most impassioned section of pleas in the entire book. The poet acknowledges, right? He's acknowledged the woman's immense suffering. He's taken great pains to do that in the first poem and in the first part of The second, he's even given her space to speak for herself and offered no corrective, no admonishment for any wrong things that she may have said. He just lets her speak in the midst of her pain. But then he seeks to comfort her. But he knows there's nothing that he can really say that's just going to make it all better, to make her feel any better as she sits in the, the midst of the ashes of a raised city and temple with her prophets, priests, uh, princes, and old and young people lying dead in the streets, her mighty men, her young women, captives and slaves. So he says, look to God. He pleads with her to be totally and completely vulnerable before the Lord. "Pour, Pour out your heart like water, he says, in His presence but he knows her he knows this city well he knows her pain and he fears that she's going to hear his plea and do nothing so he concludes well, if you won't if you won't plead for yourself plead for your children turn for the sake of your children Last week, we, we mentioned how the poet offers for the reader's consideration the dying of these children in the streets. He says, Consider this to see how great the suffering is. Here, now, he calls upon this woman city, Lady Zion, to do the same thing. Look at these children, woman, he says. Look and plead for the lives of your children. It's a very sad scene. This woman is weeping over all that's happened to her. The last word we heard from her was back at the end of Lamentations 1, as we said, when she, she asked the Lord to deal with her aggressors as he had dealt with her before she falls into silence. And so the poet instructs her plead with the Lord, plead with the Lord for the lives of your children. And then he waits. So look with me then, in the second place, at verse 20, where we see this woman speak to God. I think it's easy to imagine a long, dramatic silence that ensues after the poet finishes speaking in verse 19. don't know how long, maybe she speaks right away, but it, it's easy to imagine. He says, "Plead with the Lord," and then it 's just silence for a long time until Finally, eking out these words. She cries out to God. But it isn't the type of crying out to God that you might have imagined or that we might hope. doesn't quite fit what we would want to hear from her. For the fourth time now, she calls upon the Lord to look and see. That was almost exclusively what she she had said in uh, in the first poem. Every time she speaks, she says, Look, O Lord, and see. She says this again here. And based on what else she says in these three verses, it doesn't seem like she's asking for much else. Her questions in verse 20 lead us to think that her request that He look is is not so much asking for a look of compassion, but is more of a request that God look and face what He had done. She puts three questions to the Sovereign Lord here, and they are uncomfortable questions. Let's look at each of them in turn. First, she asks, "...with whom have you dealt thus?" The thrust of this question is on the nature of the covenantal relationship between Jerusalem that they had previously enjoyed with God, right, between Jerusalem and the Lord. This relationship they had had. Another way that you could phrase this question might be, who do you think you're treating this way? The personified city calls on God to look and give an answer for what He's done to His covenant people. How is it, she asks, that you could have treated us, us, us this way? How could you have treated us this way? Jerusalem, she asked. because what happened there was shocking, perhaps most of all because of to whom it happened. And so the woman challenges God to look and answer. And have you abandoned every shred of covenant obligation? you have to us? Which admittedly is a bit ironic coming from from Judah. A question about covenant faithfulness and covenant obligations. But she asks nonetheless, "With with whom have you dealt thus? Who have you treated this way? And then she goes on, a second question. Should women eat the fruit of their womb? The children of their tender care? Here is surely the most shocking image that has confronted us thus far in these opening two poems. Mothers eating their own children. If the first question that she asks here asks God to explain whether He has transgressed the boundaries of His covenant with Judah, the second question, ask him to explain. Question one, right, is, hey, covenant obligations, Yahweh, don't forget. Question two, she says, have you transgressed the, the boundaries of, of humanity itself? Mothers eating their own children? And this, of course, was prophesied. To Israel, centuries before, by Moses <coughs> By Moses in Deuteronomy 28. God threatened then that um, when Israel had irreparably broken their covenant with God, he would bring upon them various curses, and things would be so bad that they would end up eating, quote, "the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters." whom the Lord your God has given to you in this siege and distress with which your enemies shall distress you. It's Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifty-three. <coughs> Is there anything more unnatural in this world than for a mother to consume her own child? Now, the implications of this for our present day are quite obvious. We won't belabor the point. <clears throat> but the abortion industry is vile and the most unnatural thing in the world. So we can thank God for progress that's been made. The pregnancy Care Center of Rinkin, we raised 80, over $85,000 on, on Thursday, I think. For their work, and that's, that's wonderful. But there's still work to be done, and so we pray, first and foremost, that God would save the children, and that He would save souls. She asked the Lord, have you transgressed your covenant with Judah? Have you transgressed humanity itself? And then third. She challenges God's very nature. She questions His holiness. She says, prophet and priest are killed in your sanctuary. You can can almost hear the are you kidding me that lies behind this question. Those through whom God spoke and administered holiness in the land had been killed in the very place where God had dwelt. There's something very wrong with this picture. Something disturbing and unnerving. So she asks these questions. She asks this question. And again, no answer is given. Now, the questions, of course, are in many ways rhetorical. No, these things shouldn't happen, but she recognizes they are happening. And so the question behind the questions is something like, Why, O Lord, have You permitted the the impermissible? Now, we're told emphatically, however, in verse 17, that God did what He had purposed. The truth is, He didn't just permit these things. He ordained these things in a a more active sense. The reality, though, is that there's no easy way to deal with that. That God, in verse 17, had done what He had purposed, carrying out His Word. Even if it's for judgment's sake, that He'd promised long ago. There's no easy way to deal with it. But there are right and wrong ways to deal with it. And so, when we look at these three questions here, I think, for honest, they, they strike us as the wrong way to deal with to deal with it one commentator says this he says god here god the aggressor seems in the depth of her that is lady zion's darkness god the aggressor seems to also become god the transgressor god has done what should not be done god has allowed what should not be allowed I think this word seems that's an important statement here, right? We we don't know with certainty if the woman is tipping over into sinful accusations here. It seems it seems that in her darkness, the darkness has become too much for her, and she's not speaking in faith. She says, it seems, God, you have broken your covenant. You have done the indefensible. And your very nature as a holy God should be called into question. That's what it seems like she's saying. And this thought is strengthened, as we'll see, by what she says in verses 21 and 22. Before we get there, let me say this. We must not ever justify accusatory questions aimed at God. God can never do any wrong. And so God, the transgressor, is not a category that Scripture permits us to consider. However, like we saw last week, there are times when our suffering is so intense, so real, so palatable, so immense, so beyond comprehension, that we might be tempted to forget that. The poet has asked the woman to cry out to God, to cry out for herself, or at least for her own children, and she has done so. And so yes, it does not appear that this is a particularly faith-filled prayer Full of much imminable value here in verse 20. and 21 and 22. But it is a move toward God. Isn't it? In some way. At some level. Perhaps. So before we throw Lady Zion under the bus, let's remember she's already there. Under the bus, that is. And perhaps she just made her first move out. But as we'll see, this woman's movement, if it is sincere at all, it doesn't take her very far. And she descends further into the hopeless abyss of her agony. Which tells us something very important about the gospel, which we'll see. But third, in third place here, look with me. Verses 21 and 22, where we see Lady Zion descend into despairing silence once more. Yes, she speaks. She speaks to God, but she falls silent after only three stanzas, And we shall begin to fear soon enough that she has fallen silent for good. The woman musters up enough strength to hurl a few accusations at the Lord, it seems, and then she collapses in on herself in sobbing, heart-wrenching silence. You know, sin warps our perception of the world. Right? Sin warps our perceptions of ourselves. Sin warps our perceptions of God and of others. And there's a great irony In the warped perception of this woman that comes into view here in verses 21 and 22, she says, My young women and my young men lie dead in the streets. You killed them, Lord, without pity. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. You, O God, have brought my greatest fears upon me mercilessly. Like the woman who runs out of the hospital room after her son passes away, screaming at the heavens, God, how could You do this to me? You never had to watch one of Your children die. Jerusalem hurls her warped perception at Yahweh. She says that her children, those whom she held and raised, the ones that she cared for, God destroyed without a second thought. But is it really true that God cared nothing for the people of Jerusalem? Hardly. Consider what Jeremiah, God's prophet, says in Jeremiah 419. He says, "My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain." Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? Speaking again in chapter 8, verses 18 and following, Jeremiah speaks multiple times of my people. Now the reality is that God's words and Jeremiah's words throughout the book, they overlap and they, they entangle with one another. And it's not always easy to tell them apart. When is Jeremiah speaking? And when is God speaking? And Jeremiah as God's prophet is always speaking for God. And, and so the point of bringing that up is that Jerusalem had allowed her distress, which, don't forget, let's not forget, was great, She allowed her distress to cause her to forget that she was, and they were, in fact, God's people for whom He held great affection. And cared immensely that they were suffering. But she can't see it. We have descended now to what is arguably the darkest moment in the book. I think there's a moment in chapter 3 that rivals it, but this could very well be the darkest moment in this entire book. This woman demands an explanation from God. She speaks, accusing God of violating His very moral order in creation, in covenant, and in holiness, and she says, God, You have become my enemy. And yet she gets no answer to her questions. No reply to her accusations. God doesn't respond here to her challenges in verses 21 and 22. The poet doesn't either. This final declaration, verse 22, that my enemy has destroyed. Now, who's her enemy? Well, Babylon for sure. But behind that, we've seen she's thinking of the Lord. So this final declaration that God is our enemy is left to ring out into the dark with its chilling and dreadful implications just hanging about for us to ponder. Has God really become her enemy? Really? Not like her enemy. He's like her enemy before, but now she says, no, 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 you're not like an enemy, God. You are the enemy. And we're left to ask, is that it? Is that really the final word that she has to speak? Nearly, but not quite. She will not speak again for a long time. All of Lamentations 3 and 4. But we have not, let us rejoice, heard the last from Lady Zion. But we have heard the last from Lamentations 2. So I want to wrap up here with a few comments of application. I referenced a moment ago a woman, uh, uh, not any particular woman, but a woman who runs out of a hospital after the death of her son, screaming at God, you never had to watch one of your children die. Well, you know what she does next? Struck at the irony of the words that had just escaped her lips, she falls to the ground and says, of course you have. Of course you have watched one of your children die. Of course you have watched your one and only son die. You know, if there's nothing as unnatural in the world than for a parent to consume a child, then there's also likely nothing as hard in the world as for a parent to watch a child die. If you have had to do that, you've likely reached the pinnacle of human suffering in this life. And you know what? You did not weep alone. God is with you and He knows exactly what it is like to watch a child die. And if, God forbid, any of us have to endure such a hardship in the future, we can know God cares. And the Lord Jesus wept with us and over us. And let's be instructed here grieving is good and right in our suffering. Back to Walter's store for a minute. He says. Why celebrate stoic tearlessness? Why insist on never uh, outwarding the inward when the inward is bleeding? Must we always mask our suffering? He says, I've been assaulted and in the assault wounded, grievously wounded. Am I to pretend otherwise? Wounds are ugly, I know, they repel. But must they always be swathed? He commits, I shall look through the world with tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not. Now, of course, I don't mean that we should cry at every insult or injury. But there are times when nothing but tears seem to do. And we can let them stream out remembering that Jesus, too, wept. And finally, and more importantly than the sense that God sympathizes with us in our suffering, the death of Christ accomplishes something much more profound for us. Peace with God. She calls God her enemy here. And in one sense, that certainly is true. She represents rebellious, God-forsaken Israel who refused for centuries to submit to God's Lordship and to dwell in communion with Him. She left her covenant Lord, her husband, and went after other lovers over and over and over again. And so she had, in fact, made Him her enemy. But even more than that, we're told in Romans 1-3 through in multiple ways, multiple times, that every single person Ever born except for Christ is born what at enmity with God. Paul says in Romans 5 though that while we were still enemies with God, what Christ died for us, and that through faith in Christ we have obtained peace with God. So let me ask you this Who is your enemy? Is it God? If so, he has provided the way of peace. Will you take it? I pray that you will. And if you have, if you already have, and you have peace with God, what did it cost him to make you his enemy? Not just a friend but a child. May it move our hearts to great praise to think about what God's done for us.